For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at BreweryDB.com and GoodBeerMatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. What we've seen in, in recent years is some of those legacy breweries that we thought would be around forever uh, have not been around. <laughs> They've gone out of business. And, you know, any one weird beer release didn't didn't destroy the brand, but there was this accretion. You go around and look at the healthy legacy breweries and you see support for the brand that never wavered. American Craft Beer, originally built on passionate dreams, is now a legitimate business. It requires hard work to keep up with competition and stay relevant to the customers. Yet a number of our legacy breweries have recently closed or lost significant ground due to complacency or some other vice. My next guest has literally written the Bible on beer and helps us learn the difference between those breweries that thrive and those that fail. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 80 of Good Beer Matters with author Jeff Allworth. My next guest is no stranger to uh, beer and, and the and the cultural movements of beer. And he's also no stranger to writing and really uh, no stranger to podcasting as well. Um, Jeff Allworth, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I've been dying to talk to you for, uh, I guess we can start measuring in decades at this point. Um, thank you for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast. Well, thank you for having me and pointing out that we're both old. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> Always I, a nice welcome to remind <laughs> me of that. Well, you know, honestly, I've got some gray in my beard that I'm actually quite proud of. Um, I, I, I feel like I've earned that. And um, and uh, and I, I suspect you and I could probably tell a few back-in-my-day stories. We had ESB and we were happy uh, type of things, you know. And <laughs> Yeah, uh, which everyone loves, right? Which everyone everyone loves, even the even the young folk. But uh, I I do have to say there was a recent podcast uh, on your podcast, um, uh, the Beervana podcast, and and you and your partner were talking about um, uh, technological advancements that that really brought uh, beer through. But you spent a lot of time talking about beer in the '80s and everything else. And I was just thinking, yep, I remember that. Yep, I remember that. And I was thinking, man, I'm old, but God, it was it was great to. See, remember this industry in the '80s and see it grow through the '90s and beyond. It, it's it's uh, not everyone can say that they've been paying attention 
like you have uh, to beer from its craft beer inception. So, yeah, and there is actually some value in that, despite the fact that um, you know it's a it's an industry animated by younger people, uh, which is appropriate. Um, but there is some benefit in having seen kind of the, the changes and, you know, seeing the shake out of the 90s. So you kind of get a sense that uh, even in a robust industry like craft brewing, uh, there are ups and downs and, you know, things come around. And so it's, it's nice to have a, a, a kind of lived experience that stretches back a ways. I, I, I agree. I think and it's funny. The older I get, the more history becomes important uh, so that we can uh, avoid the the lessons that we've already learned um, and that we can keep everything moving forward instead of going around in circles. I think um, for all you young folks out there that are listening to this podcast right now, um, understand the history or understanding the history of craft beer and beer in general, um, I think is a very vital thing to pay attention to. So um, yeah, thank you for that. Please go listen to uh, uh, Jeff's uh, podcast, especially on that topic. It was fascinating. Oh, but, good. Glad you liked it. Um, but uh, but we kind of got a little uh, sidetracked on that one. Um, will you please introduce yourself and and tell us about your beer background for for you know those five people who have never heard of you and and don't know uh, why we're talking to you today? All right. Uh, yeah, I'm Jeff Allworth, and I've been writing about beer uh, seriously for about a decade. Um, I, I've been a freelance writer for about a decade, uh, but I've been writing about beer since the late '90s when I got. Uh, a column in the local alt-weekly newspaper here in Portland, Oregon. Um, and then I, I've been writing about beer, you know, more seriously or less seriously over the, that period of time. Um, and then starting about 10 years ago, I, I got into uh, a more professional context. So I started writing books, The Beer Bible, Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers. Um, I have a long-running blog. And as you mentioned, uh, we have a podcast. I have a podcast with my, my partner, Patrick Emerson, who's a OSU, uh, Oregon State University uh, professor of economics. Yeah, and 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 granted, uh, so you live in Portland, and you spend a lot of time to, uh, talking about beer from the Northwest, um, which is you know if I'm from the Northeast or you know San Diego or I, I may be uh, mildly um, I don't know that that's you know somewhat uh, interested in what's happening in the Northwest, but you also do talk about beer. Uh, at large, and and you pay attention to what's going on uh, globally. Uh, if I have read that correctly, right? Yeah, I try to do that. Uh, I my 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 blog that I've been uh, doing, I think, like sixteen years now, um, definitely has a readership that's located here in the Northwest, and so I do like to cover what's happening locally. And and in fact, when I read uh, writers who live elsewhere, I, I think it's important that they talk about their local context. We drink locally. And so, you know, when I read uh, Pete Brown or who's in uh, England or uh, uh, Owen Walsh, who's in, in Brussels, I love to get that local color. And I think people probably like to read that one, you know, see what's going on in the Northwest. But of course, not everybody lives in the Northwest and, and beer is local. So most of those beers I talk about, people don't know about. So I do try to uh, reference the larger brewing industry nationwide. And then, uh, because of the beer writing that I've done, uh, the book writing, I have been to Europe quite a bit. And, and I think one reputation, I, one part of my reputation is the guy who knows about European beer. So, <laughs> uh, when I first started writing about it, it was, it had, it had much more cultural cachet than it does now, but, uh, but particularly brewers will often, uh, 
ring me up and say, so in the Czech Republic, when you're making a tamave, what kind of, you know, what's what's the decoction regime there? What what, what are the dark malts? Stuff like that. So uh, I've kind of become a little bit of a go-to because I've talked to a number of brewers in Europe and, and have the goods on that stuff. And that's fantastic that that you can actually have that experience and share that knowledge. Whereas my go to is, oh, you want to learn all about Czech beer? Well, here I know Evan Rail. Here, go go talk to him. You know? Right. Um, uh, but uh, so the, so you have a, a huge huge pedigree. I mean, I know there are sixteen year olds with a blog, but there are very few people with a sixteen year old blog. And and so that <laughs> that that is to say that. Um, that you've spent a lot of time uh, deeply immersing yourself into the the craft and the culture of the beer world uh, uh, around the globe, uh, and have uh, educated all the rest of us. I know I've learned a lot listening to uh, your podcast and and reading your books. I mean, I mean to say that you wrote the Bible on beer um, figuratively is one thing, but to say that you've done it literally is is quite another. So. Um, uh, without trying to overflatter you, uh, you are the man. So, um, uh, I, am really, uh, ex- I, I'm really excited. I've been thinking about this topic for a long time now, and, and I figured you would be the best person to really dive into this topic as, as far as, you know, the greater topic of why breweries fail. But, um, you know, the kind of like the opening question is, um, you know, there are those breweries that that thrive, that have done very well, n- not just with this pandemic, but in general, who do very, very well. Um, uh, and, the you know, first one off the top of my head uh, coming from the Northwest would be Deschutes. You know, I mean, they've they've done very well. Um, then there are those who survive um, They're you know, and they're not leading the charge anymore like they once were, but they're still around. Um, what's the difference between those breweries that that truly thrive and those are just hanging on? Well, let's back up a little bit and think about beer in a large context. Like okay. uh, beer has been, you know, beer has been made for thousands of years, and commercial brewing has been around uh, many hundreds of years. And so, uh, the United States, in the United States, when we think about craft brewing, we have a little bit of a funny lens because it all starts in about you know 1980, roughly. And so our 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 kind of sense of the scope of what business looks like isn't as deep and rich as it is if you think about it in a larger context. So when I first started traveling to Europe uh, and visiting breweries there, instead of seeing breweries that were, you know, Sierra Nevada, old, which is still a pretty impressively old brewery, uh, you know, I was seeing breweries that were founded in the 18th century. Um, and, uh, you know, all across the UK, there are a bunch of Victorian breweries, over well over 100 years old. Um and it was interesting to see, and I would talk to the brewers and say, uh, so when they were family owned, so does your, do you have kids? Sometimes they'd say yes. Sometimes I'd say no. If they said yes. I'd say, are they interested in beer? Sometimes they'd say yes. Sometimes they'd say no. And uh, each generation, you know, as that as it, it, it comes time to figure out what to do with that, that brewery, there's the opportunity that there's no, no heir uh, or that the heir wants to be a lawyer or an artist or something else and doesn't want the brewery. And I began to see how tenuous it was that most breweries don't survive. You know, the vast, vast majority have a natural course of life. Uh, they, they come into existence, serve a purpose for a while, and then go away. That's just kind of the way things are. And as I thought about the United States, I thought this is a really weird, interesting kind of natural experiment we're running because most of these breweries, you know, started after 1980 and they're still 
run by the person who founded it, who has all this passion, who wanted to do this crazy thing, starting a brewery, work uh, 16 hours a day for, uh, you know, seven days a week for, for two years to get it up and running and then uh, carry a huge, huge amount of risk <laughs> yeah. uh, in debt. Um, you know, like that, that takes a lot of commitment and um, uh, kind of passion that uh, animates a brewery as it goes through its lifetime. And, and we just haven't seen that transition point come. Um, and, and then the other, you know, the other thing is we think of beer as somewhat static in many ways, but in fact, uh, particularly in the United States, the beer industry rotates probably every decade, um, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years, you have a pretty radical change in the way we drink beer, the kind of beer we drink, uh, and the, the kinds of breweries that we think are cool. Um, so the older you get, once you, you know, when you're in that era, uh, when you start in an era, then you can have the, you know, you're on, you're on track, you're, you're on, on trend. But then when you pass out of that era, you have to figure out what to do. Do you hold the course, um, and stick with something that may be a little bit out of fashion? Do you change and maybe abandon the, the drinkers, uh, who are loyal fans? You mentioned Deschutes Brewery. They were founded in 1988. You know, that was in the very first era, the brew pub era. They were brew, brew pub making English style pub ales. Um, the IPA era came and they transitioned, transitioned seamlessly to that. And now we're on to this kind of third era of massive uh, innovation and change. And that's, you know, an era they've had a hard time uh, transitioning into. So you, you kind of have to make your call, you know, are you going to, are you, you know, how are you going to do that evolution? And at each one of those moments, um, a brewery, you know, may, may find themselves going in reverse for the first time. And in, in that, to me, that makes sense in the context of discussing like macroeconomics, where there are cycles, and and we we know there are cycles, and there will be the ups and downs, and that's just part of the flow of everything. But um, but it, I kind of snickered a little bit while you were talking about um, you know the European tradition of you know family owned breweries uh, that go back um, centuries, and and probably in family homes that go back centuries. Um, there was that movie came out, you know, back back in our day, Jeff. Uh, that movie came out called L.A. Story, and they're doing a little tour guide through uh, a, tu a tour bus through Hollywood, and the tour guide looks over and and says, "Well, over here on the left, everyone, we have uh, uh, Hollywood celebrity homes that are almost 20 years old." You know, kind of like that was like, <laughs> "Oh my gosh," you know. Um, but that is kind of the state of of the U.S. I mean, of course, we've got Yingling that kind of kind of roots our history and even Sierra Nevada, it's, you know, what, 40 years old now. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not that old. And a lot of these breweries were opened maybe from passion, but they've turned into businesses. But now those businesses are being run, um, you know, to maybe just kind of like, hey, on and keep doing what we've been doing because it worked 20 years ago. It should work now um, versus, you know, those uh, that are trying to evolve with the times and stay in front of the, the wave of, of interest. Um, what is what is the difference from that, you know, at least American standpoint um, of, of attitude or culture? What What is that? Yeah, and I mean, it really varies depending on what kind of brewery we're talking about, too. If you're talking about a small, uh, you know, a brew pub with with maybe a little packaging uh, that sells 3,000 barrels a year, 
it's a really different situation than you're talking about a regional brewery that sells 100,000 or more barrels a year, um, particularly one that has to sell in uh, to just go back to Deschutes, for example, um, you know, sell in a number of states where uh, local is king now uh, and your, you know, your volume really got built up as you moved into new territories at one time. Mm-hmm. So now you have 300,000 barrels of capacity and, uh, you, you know, you sell all across the Western U.S. and, in, you know, into parts towards the east. Uh, that's a really different model. It's much more difficult to maintain energy and excitement in those 300,000 barrels than it is if you're the 3,000 barrel brewery. You might have a, you know, a kind of a, you you, you can probably hang on to a customer base and, and service a customer base at a lower level a lot easier. Um, so there's, I think there's some question of, you know, it's great to grow and everybody loves to grow. And then there's, but but it just increases downstream risk at remaining relevant to a, a national or regional audience um, you know over the decades becomes a really challenging proposition yeah I, I can imagine that the the pressure to uh, I, I remember um, when I lived in Oregon the conversation of uh, Deschutes isn't um, doesn't cater to the locals anymore because you know they were trying to open up on the East Coast and they're shipping uh, beer to um, the country and, and I don't mean to pick on Deschutes is just continuing with the theme here but um, but there are a lot of breweries that were like that 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 got really big they lived the American dream um, uh, they they were successful but um, but there's some people that felt like hey I was there in the beginning when you had three beers and there were and, and 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 only 10 of us came in on a Wednesday. Um, um, so some of those people I know feel slighted when a brewery gets really, really big. Um, and, and so I, it, it does speak to the defining what is thriving, what is success versus what is surviving and, and what is failing. It, it, I, you, you make a good point that depending on the size, it's going to be totally different. Um, uh, but what about the the small brewer um, who, you know, uh, I I think of uh, Porter Brewing in Redmond, Oregon, where they are a British style cask brewery, where they, by the nature of their beer, they can and never will become really, really, really big. You can't you can't move that stuff and serve it in ordinary conditions. But but they are serving, quote unquote, uh, beers that we drank you know decades ago and and doing very well at it. Um, so it doesn't seem to be a, a trend of, well, if you're not serving hazies and seltzers, then I want nothing to do with you. Uh, it seems to be more of like a, a culture, a vibe, a momentum, a popularity of, of the brewery. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah. I mean, if you if you have a little brewery and you do something, uh, offbeat like Cascale, uh, you've already picked your audience, right? You've already, yes. you've already, you've already said, uh, we're not, or, you know, we, we like you said, we're not going to be very big. There's just not enough people out there who like this kind of beer for us to grow very big. Uh, on the other hand, there's if you have a business model that's built around a fairly manageable volume, uh, you know, and, and, and whatever channels you plan to sell through, if you've done the numbers and, you know, figured out that that's a good a good size for you. Um, once you achieve it, you know, it's a much easier prospect to stay healthy. Uh, you have a built-in small avid customer base and you may not be getting rich, but you're also, I think, far less uh, risk of, you know, suffering some kind of interruption. Uh, 
And and I think it's really interesting. Breweries like that, um, I don't know about Porter uh, because I'm not in uh, Central Oregon, but I do know that here in, in Portland, uh, there were a number of breweries that had that kind of uh, a more niche approach, but they were very connected to their smaller audience. And when COVID hit, um, they made an appeal to their customers and said, you know, you got to buy directly from the brewery. We're, we're in trouble now. And they had a bunch of people who were very, very connected to the brewery and helped get through this tough time in, in a way that I think other businesses couldn't necessarily uh, rely on. Um, and it shows that connective tissue that you can have to a smaller group that's a, you know, a really avid group of people, particularly if you include physical space, like that really ties people to a brewery. If you go in there all the time and you know, the faces of the people who work there and the faces of the people who drink there. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it, there's, there are so many different considerations here. If you want a, a safe, stable business that will, uh, earn you a, you know, some revenue and, and give you a nice life, but not a mansion. Um, it might be worth thinking of starting a brewery that specializes in cask ale or lagers or uh, saisons or something. Um, you know, that doesn't have a big audience. Uh, but if you can if you can build up your fan base um, to a sustainable level, then you know it's pretty stable after that. And it it kind of makes me think of that saying that you know the more money, more headaches, and and um, you know a small brewery you know, hoping, hoping they can survive whereas you know, a large brewery, um, probably has enough capital to survive. At least, you know, one would imagine from the outside, but they have a lot of overhead. They have a lot of infrastructure that everything is shutting down. And, um, and, you know, and anytime those fermenters aren't full and, uh, trucks aren't driving away with, uh, a load of kegs, um, that that's that's probably an expensive day of just money just going down the drain. So I, I would imagine there's equal but different issues when when people are not um, not not thriving. Um, and there's been a number of times when big breweries have had to scale back their workforce and then they build them back up and they scale them back and build them back up. Um, but that but that's to me that's all part of either surviving or thriving. Um, I think. Uh, I think part of this is um, uh, part of this question. I re- we really ought to talk about is customer perception and um, and um, uh, brand awareness out in the market as well. Uh, you know, again, we're gonna I'm gonna pick on Deschutes this whole episode. I mean, they've done a, a good job getting their name out there. People know them for being good beer. But other breweries that started in 1988 or before that that were contemporaries. They've just kind of fell behind. They're not quite there. Um, and I know you've, you've uh, spent some time writing about this and talking about other breweries along these lines. What makes these breweries fall from grace? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Yeah, we in Oregon is always a, an interesting uh, 
small case study to look at because we we are kind of a ahead of the rest of the country in many ways in, in terms of uh, beer penetration, uh, early breweries, larger breweries. We you know we we punched way above our weight in terms of larger breweries. And what we've seen in in recent years is some of those legacy breweries that we thought would be around forever uh, have not been around. <laughs> They've gone out of business. So two that are quite uh, analogous to Deschutes in many ways are Portland Brewing, which closed up uh, uh, last year, earlier this year, some mm-hmm. very recently, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Bridgeport, which closed down, I think, in the end of at the end of 2019. And Bridgeport was. Uh, the first craft brewery to survive uh, in Oregon, there was a small craft brewery called Cartwright in Portland. that was founded in 1979, I think. It didn't make it. Um, so then Bridgeport came in 84, uh, and it looked like the it had it seemed to have the most rock solid brand of any brewery uh, in the state for the next 20 years, um, and. You know, it, it didn't ever get super giant, but uh, they really tended their their audience. And and in 1996, released this great IPA, which was sort of the first juicy IPA in the United States. Um, it was made with a, just an amazing ton of whirlpool hops, um, and it was actually pretty hazy too. <laughs> uh, and you know that that uh, that was one of those moments. So um, that was you know right after I mentioned that. Every 10 or 15 years, you go through a different age. Uh, we were coming out of that brew pub age where they were making a bunch of English-style beers, and they made this IPA. And that IPA defined um, the Oregon palate for the next decade and mm-hmm. was, of course, a great success for the brewery. Um, and they were a very healthy brewery and continued on. And you know they were always considered kind of the city brewery. And then eventually, uh, the out-of-state owner kind of lost touch with what the currents were, um, didn't keep up, uh, continued to try to, uh, introduce weird new beers that didn't have anything to do with the brand, uh, which these, you know, had the strong brand element and, you know, any one weird beer release didn't, didn't destroy the brand, but there was this accretion. And over time, it just seemed like Bridgeport was this brewery that was doing weird, uninteresting beer. They were just releasing these beers that, uh, nobody cared about and they just kept coming out and dying and you know meanwhile their ipa was no longer uh you know the fashion of in ipas has changed was were changing and even though it was the first juicy one it wasn't juicy in the way that beer was juicy after 2010 um and certainly after 2015 and you know they just slowly 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 uh made a series of decisions in, in terms of their their branding their uh, their lineup and kind of their approach to thinking about w- where their place was in, in the Oregon ecosystem, but they just lost, you know, they continued to lose volume until it didn't make sense to stay open anymore. Um, so, you, you know, we can talk about uh, Deschutes having their own kind of series of troubles, but Deschutes looks really healthy by comparison. They've managed to uh, support their core brands, even uh, Dr. Porter and Mirror Pond are still, uh, major, you know, major pieces of their their puzzle. Um, Fresh squeezed has become this family. So they, you know, they they sort of recognize that importance of the identity and the legacy of, of their their popular brands, even though those are not even even Fresh Squeezed. I think is a decade old now. Yeah, uh, I know. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it, 
you can kind of compare these two and see, well, it wasn't like you release a weird dude that nobody likes and you're dead, you're dead in the water. But if you do that for a decade, it's, it's big trouble. And do you think that the consumers can tell when, when the, the ownership or the driving force behind a brewery is just all about making money with the cheapest beer they can get within the craft beer industry? Yeah. I mean, certainly. And that, that can be a really, you know, I think that's a, a fast road to obsolescence unless you are a, a you know, a large region, regional brewery wants to do, get into the mass market bloggers and, you know, cream ale or something like that. Um, but I think the, the bigger challenge is um, how, how do we uh, appeal to a new audience who is young, right? So every, every 10 years, the 20 year old, uh, 21 year old drinker who's just coming into beer is, a, you know, it's a, it's a new generation. We're, we're talking, we continue to refer to young people as millennials. The oldest millennials are 40 now, right? So we're on to Gen Z that are just coming into beer. So what appeals to Gen Z? How do we, how do we appeal to these new drinkers in a way that we don't look like dad trying to use teenage slang? That's really <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we are who we are and how do we appeal to them on our terms, but find a place, find this, uh, crevice where, you know, they can, they can get a foothold into our brand, um, without just being embarrassing. And I think that's always the biggest challenge for breweries to age gracefully really is what we're talking about. Well, and you bring up a really good point too. Um, you know, every industry has to, you know, constantly fill backfill it's customer base. Um, you know, if you and I were to go out and buy a car, well, now we have a car. We'll probably have that for the next five or 10 years. You know, we got to find new customers to buy new cars. Um, uh, but, you know, and kind of alluding to your comment about, you know, every every decade or so, there's like a new um, kind of um, theme to the, the beer industry. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but one of the themes is, you know, people don't want to drink their mom and dad's beer. Um you know, and, and it's always like a generation or, or two where, you know, it comes back around. Um, now I'm, I'll, I'll bet you a beer that you and I are drinking more lagers than we used to when we were younger, but you know, that's what my dad drank. Um, completely different lagers now, but, but it, it's kind of like we go through this, this cycle it, it, <clears throat> excuse me, how much, um, how much does that cycle, affect the ebb and flow of these breweries and whether they succeed or fail? I mean, I think it's huge. And you're, I think you're really right about you don't want to drink dad's beer, but grandpa's beer is often pretty cool, right? Like <laughs> yeah. then you're getting, you go past that awkward uh, middle-aged embarrassing phase that young people are, you know, always embarrasses young people into vintage, something really cool. Um, and so you, you know, you want to be able to survive as a brewery long enough so that you get back into the vintage and cool stuff. And to their credit, you know, Pat showed, uh, 20 years ago, how that appeal can really work with young drinkers, um, by, you know, by, by leaning into your, your old tradition, um, that, that can be appealing. So being able to survive <laughs> past that awkward middle phase is probably an important part of a brewery success. And I think, you know, when we look at healthy older breweries uh, like Sierra Nevada, for example, um, I think this is a brewery. Nobody is going to say that that pale ale tastes uh, 
modern and, and you know, if we did a, if we did a, a, a tasting of pale ales, modern pale ales, and we threw Sierra Nevadas in there, we would all identify it because it tastes like it's 40 years old. But the cool thing is it tastes like it's 40 years old, right? It's, it's classic. I mean, everybody in the world thinks of it as one of the most important and tasty beers in the world. And, and, and it, nobody's copying it now because why would you copy Sierra Nevada? It's like, why would you remake a Guinness? Why would you remake a Pilsner? Well, he, there's no point in it. That's it's sui generis. It's it is it is a classic, you know. So if you survive that far, and then you can start building on that. I mean, I think uh, Sierra Nevada is a perfect example of how how to do that. They built on their kind of legacy by by updating. And hazy little thing is this kind of perfect evocation of what mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada has been doing for for decades. You know, it's 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 sessionable. It's hoppy. Uh, it's you know it, it tastes like a Sierra Nevada beer, but it's modern. It tastes normal, you know, like to the normal palates that we have now. <laughs> when we taste an IPA, we don't want to taste a lot of caramel malt and a lot of bitterness and a lot of heaviness. Um, we want uh, something that's crisper and lighter and really juicy and uh, fruity and you know that's that's what we're looking for. So is there a way? You know, I think uh, uh, Sierra Nevada looked at it and thought, is there a way that we can join? modern beer and still do it in a way that, that speaks Sierra Nevada to people. And and they did it beautifully. And I'm glad you brought up that example because I've, I've wondered, I, I've wondered how people perceive that. Is this, is this just a, a legacy brand that is keeping up with the times, but adding their own little uh, personality and flavor to it? Or are they, you know, your and my beer trying to keep up with the young kids these days? Um, I don't know how people perceive it. I know it's everywhere, so it it must be popular. But uh, but you know, it, it seems like your sense on that is that no, they're they're just keeping up with the times and evolving. Is that sound? Is that right? Yeah, it, totally. Uh, I think they're they're they 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 have become uh, an iconic brand, right? So yeah. there there are a number of brands that we have in the country that that were once the cool young hip brand and now have uh, aged into something that is much more durable and permanent. You think of a, a brand like Nike, um, which is probably pretty close to contemporaneous with uh, uh, Sierra Nevada, yeah. but, um, but, is in a, but is in a field that is much more you know, youth-focused and uh, less legacy-focused. And yet um, they, they have managed to stay relevant and define uh, cool for a long time. Um, or you can go into... I don't know why I'm stuck. I guess my mind is stuck on clothing, but uh, mm-hmm. like Levi, you know, Levi's are a brand that still remain hit um, uh, well over a hundred years later. So it, it is possible to define hipness in a way that does not uh, demand that you follow trends, but that you, you know, you just kind of stick with what you do and uh, work with making the thing that you do hip. <laughs> and I, I really think that uh, Sierra Nevada, after um, uh, a period of time where they were a little, you know, they were struggling a little bit, um, they were trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, I think they've kind of come back around. And, you know, one, one important thing is when I look at other breweries that are big legacy breweries that had a, an important flagship that fall, fell out of fashion, the ones that didn't support that brand that flagship brand tended to find themselves in bigger trouble than the, the ones who did. So, you know, I'm thinking of uh, another Portland brewery as, as uh, Widmer brothers. Okay. Yeah. 
they had this this beer Hefeweizen, which was uh, easily the most popular beer in the Pacific Northwest from about 1986 until probably the year 2000. Um, they were they didn't even start bottling until uh, the mid 90s, and at that point they were selling 68,000 barrels of draft beer, most of it Hefeweizen across the Northwest. Wow. Um, everybody, it, it kind of for, for, for locals, Hefeweizen meant, which everyone said Hefeweizen, uh, was was what craft beer was. So sometimes if you wanted a craft beer, you just say Hefeweizen. So all of the other breweries had to had to brew this beer. So it, it's this incredibly valuable uh, property, right? You own uh, Hefeweizen um, if you're Widmer Brothers. And then beginning in the somewhere in the you know mid aughts, mid to late aughts. Um, they wanted to continue to grow the brand and, and go out into other areas. And they completely abandoned uh, Haifa, uh, which they, they call it all these different things now, but Haifa is probably the easiest way to call it. Um, and for, for several years, just let it die. You know, um, I, I mean, it didn't, it didn't really die. It was still the, the, the giant producer in the, in the brand, but they did not support it. And then they saw revenue uh, or volumes rather just completely drop. And now they've supported it again, and they're trying to, you know, bring it back and, and make it a popular beer again. Uh, and I think with some success, but it's very different than what uh, Sierra did by never abandoning Pale. You know, always always leading with Pale, and 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 of course Pale's uh, volume is shrinking, um, sure. it's particularly shrinking as a as a proportion of of their overall sales. And as but, a, as a style, I mean, no no one drinks pale ale anymore unless you're an an older guy about our age. And um, and I'm I'm hoping to see it come back around because it was such a as a style, let alone as a specific uh, beer from from the uh, Sierra Nevada. But I mean, it it is such a well balanced, easy drinking, wonderful all around beer, which is why it was so popular in the beginning of craft beer. Um, that I, I look forward to the day when that comes back around. It's like, hey, have you tried this? This is amazing. And people rediscover pale ale. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you think about some of the most successful breweries, uh, you know, legacy breweries in the United States, you think of Bell's. Mm-hmm. Well, Two Hearted, you know, they never abandoned Two Hearted. Not, Two Hearted sells amazingly well. Blows my mind. Allagash, a Whitbeer. Well, Whitbeer was the hottest beer style for a while, and then it completely crashed out. There's almost nothing that's as passe in, in American brewing as a Whitbeer. And if you go to New England, um, you know you'll find you'll find Allagash white all over the place. It is you know it's they they it's it's the flagship. It's something that they're completely committed to. Um, New Glarus, you know, you just, you kind of, you go around and look at the healthy legacy breweries and you see support for the brand that never wavered. Even of course, as you're introducing new beers and you're evolving, you, uh, you support, you support where the brand equity is, which is always in the flagship brands. There was that period of time where everyone said flagships are dead. And I, I think some of these legacy brands took that a little bit to heart <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're selling 200,000 barrels and, and uh, 75,000 barrels is your, is your flagship, and it used to be, it, you know, uh, the equivalent of 75%, now it's fallen back to, you know, less than 50%. Maybe that feels like you should abandon it, but come on. 
that's 75,000 barrels. You know, that's a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> you really need to protect that. But I can imagine that when, you know, uh, owners or uh, CEOs or bean counters are looking at the bottom line and just looking at beer by the numbers, um, you know, it, there's a lot of temptation to uh, abandon the, the the anchors and, and focus on the things that are... Um, you know, try and get in front of the next wave. Um, so I, it, I think it takes a lot of moxie for someone to say, you know what, this has been selling for the, the last several decades and it's, you know, it's hitting a slump right now. Um, you know, kind of like we talked about the macroeconomic uh, cycles. It's like, we know it's in a down part of the cycle, but it's a cycle. It'll come back. It takes a moxie to hold the course. Um, it, if that is part of the secret sauce of of breweries who main who evolve and maintain popularity and and who um, remain relevant and continue to thrive, what are some of the other elements of that secret sauce? I think, uh, yeah, it, it's good not to focus too much on the flagship because you do have to grow. And you know, we were just talking about uh, hazy little thing. I think I think you need to figure out where the market is headed and and how you can. Uh, continue to participate in, you know, the, the later, the latest trends that supports rather than undermines your core identity. And so, uh, you know, Hazy Little Thing is a great example of that. But um, uh, to go to Deschutes is another example. Deschutes, even 10 years ago, uh, as, as they were uh, working with, you know, they were, they were looking at, uh, Black Butte and Mira Pond diminish. They were trying a bunch of different things. They they tried a white IPA uh, that was really well made. I think it was the best example. They tried a black IPA. I think mm-hmm. it was really well made. I think it was one of the best examples. Um, and then they came out with uh, Fresh Squeezed, which was uh, you know a, an extremely modern, juicy beer uh, that was well ahead of its time. I think um, I wrote a I, I, the first time I had it. I wrote a, a post where I. I it was such an unusual beer. I said, is, are we, is this a new, should we call these things sweet IPAs? Because <laughs> it's, it really de-emphasized bitterness uh, in, in favor of all the flavor and aroma of uh, modern hops. And, you know, it just, it didn't, it didn't have a palate like old IPAs at all. And it's very new and modern. And um, when I was doing my beer Bible book tour in 2015, uh, all over the country, it was one of the hottest beers. And I would go and I would, you know, talk to people. What's well? What, what are you guys drinking here? And so often they would say fresh squeezed IPA yeah. from Deschutes. Um, and I think, you know, so you you also need to find that hazy little thing, find that fresh squeezed IPA, find the beer that um, participates in the new trends, and you know, that takes your your brewery forward, but doesn't squander the 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 brand equity that you've built up with your flagship and, and the identity that's built around that. Um, so you do have to do that. And I think, uh, I think you want to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to talk about, uh, brands without, uh, seeming like I'm being critical, but I I mean, I I think of a beer like, uh, like Wowza that, that Deschutes released. And Mm -hmm. I, and I think, was anybody was anybody just sitting on the edge of their seat thinking, man, I really need this beer, this Wowza? Yeah. Or or was that a beer that was designed to appeal to drinkers uh, who are not big fans of the, uh, 
you know, of the of the brand necessarily, just to fill, just to find the, you know, their sales in low alcohol uh, beers, and we need to, pr- to participate in that space. So let's get one out there. Um, that tends not to, in my uh, in my reading of of what what makes a healthy brewery, those tend not to, uh, in the long term support you even though they may you may you may get a bump for a quarter or two out of those beers um i think in the long run they weaken the band brand they dilute people's sense of of what your brewery does and that you know you have to be careful about what you're trading when you when you go for those short-term little shots in the arm well, it's funny you brought up Wowza. I I was actually thinking of uh, the beer Deschutes by Deschutes, um, and yeah. I and I talked to someone who worked for Deschutes at the time, and I asked him, "Is this just kind of like your craft version of Michelob Ultra?" and and he he just smiled and and blinked rapidly, and um, which kind of gave me the answer I expected. But um, part of that and that. Let me just insert a thing there. That beer was actually perfectly Deschutes. Like if you didn't know that what what they called it or what the branding looked like and you just poured it in a glass and said taste this does this seem like a Deschutes beer I thought it was a really nice beer uh and then the the brand uh we you know with the muscle bound red parrot and the the weird the weird campaign they rolled out was just so undeschutes like so it was I give the brewers a lot of credit for making this incredibly palatable light lager that had this kind of ethereal floating uh <laughs> modern hop on top of it yeah. it was it was a it was a clever delicate beer the kind of which Deschutes has been making for 30 years and then they did this muscle down parrot that looked like it was straight out of Anheuser-Busch's playbook and that was super weird well and 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 that's a and that's a really good comment um the you know part of what i was thinking is with that beer it was I thought the beer itself was good, but it was not a beer I'd expect Deschutes to make until I framed it from the standpoint of, um, you know, you know. Granted, okay, you you and I would probably drink a fresh haze on a Friday night at at five thirty, but if we were out in in the summertime trying to uh, uh, float the Deschutes River through the old mill, or up in Portland uh, trying to you know be around the being around the water and but you know still keep our wits about us, then having a four point two percent light easy drinking lager makes a little bit more sense as a as a tool. But I thought it was clever from the standpoint of trying to. Uh, you know, no pun intended, reach across the aisle to pull these people who are drinking these mass-produced ultralight lagers, maybe seltzers, and say, here, try this. Oh, you like that? We'll try this. Oh, you like that? We'll try that, and kind of bring them into the craft beer fold. Um, I thought that was an interesting way, and I don't know if that was successful. I imagine that was part of the the strategy, but um, so it, it to me, it, it, it kind of speaks to, you know, you have to innovate. You have to try different things. But at what point are you over innovating and causing problems for yourself? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I think that's a, a really good question. I, I, I yeah, and it's I, I don't know that there's a good prescriptive way. I, I don't know that there's a blueprint that says you go this far, but you don't go any further, um, because there's always going to be examples of breweries that didn't go that far, and 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 so. so didn't remain relevant. Uh, and then you're going to have other breweries that went over the line and it totally worked. So, <laughs> uh, mean, mean like uh, voodoo donut beers. Well, 
yeah, I'm not sure that that definitely went over the line. I'm not sure. <laughs> ultimately, that was such a great thing for the brand. But. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a fun idea, but uh, not for me. But anyway, I, I interrupted you. No, that's, that, uh, yeah, that's all I had to say on that one. Um, it's hard. It's really hard to know how. Uh, I, I don't mean, I don't think, I talk to enough owners that I hear their frustration when they, when they, um, are forced to respond to people like me who don't actually own their own business and yeah. haven't had to make these tough decisions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. And also haven't had to make these decisions while they're managing a big staff, some of whom may be in crisis, but they have, you know, they have that issue while they're, you know, aluminum can prices are spiking while COVID is happening, while whatever, you know, whatever, 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 while, while they're, they're cool, uh, multi-million dollar bottling line that they installed five years ago is now super passe and they got to get a canning line and they can't sell that giant bottling line. And like, there's a, I get that, uh, this is there, you know, it's, it's 11 dimensional chess and, uh, uh, it's not easy. And I don't, I don't mean to suggest that there's anybody who has a a great answer to this stuff. I don't know, Jeff. I I think you and I um, have every right to talk because we are working our butts off making next to nothing behind uh, the safety of this microphone. So, (laughs) you know. Um, so we already talked about some of the breweries are doing it right and why that was one of my next questions, but, um, um, but what part of, um, you know, so there are owners that are out there that are, or or managers, CEOs that are part of the fold that go onto the, the Brewbound talks often. Um, Sam Calagione is one of those. Um, Gary Fish was one of those. Um, Ken Grossman, of course. Um, how much does the personality of the people uh, running these businesses um, help or hurt the, the breweries as well? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not totally sure. Um, I think in the in the case of, of Jim Cook, it was clearly enormously important, uh, but that was in a different era. So he was the guy, he was the face of, of a brewery when people didn't know that you could start new breweries. Uh, so he... You know, he was out there shaking hands and, and eventually on the radio and on TV. And yeah. I think that that was helpful to the, you know, I, I'm not sure when you think of uh, where we are today, uh, the the sort of status of the owner seems to be falling behind the status of the brewery itself. So, you know, you, you think of... Uh, uh, you know, to go to one of the earliest ones uh, in New England, the Alchemist was was John Kimmich more famous, or was the Alchemist more famous? Mm-hmm. Everybody knew Hetty Topper, but do they know John Kimmich? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, here in Portland, we have uh, Great Notion, and the three guys who founded it, uh, Paul. Uh, I'm gonna remember, and I just talked to one of their brewers last week and my brain is all soft. Anyway, the three brewers who founded that is, I think, uh, emphasizes my point. James is the brewer I talked to. Uh, are they more pop, you know, are they rock stars in the way that Jim cook was, or is the brand more of the rock star? And, uh, so I think, I think we're seeing the value of the personality, uh, behind the brand being less and less important. You know, I never really thought about that before, but, you know, as you're describing that and I'm thinking about it, um, uh, that, that's a really good point. 
that's a really good point. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the brand overtakes because at some point, you know, Ken Grossman retired, and if 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 he held the entire brewery on his shoulders, well, the brewery would be you're retiring with him, but it, it's not. And so uh, at some point, you know, the the baby uh, has to grow up and and go his own way. Yeah, and I think if you're thinking about <laughs> a long term uh, play, having that 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 personality um can be a little bit of a, a challenge because at some point that personality will leave and then and then you're in trouble i mean uh ken grossman is uh, one of the most best you know the probably the most well-known brewer in america and yet um he is less of the the face of the brewery and the pitch man uh than jim cook at, at boston beer so oh, it's, yeah yeah it's interesting um uh, so I, I know you've got a hard stop, uh, and so I'm going to uh, transition into some uh, final questions. Um, Jeff, you spent a long time um, educating people about beer and the beer world. Um, what do you wish people knew more about beer? Well, my shtick as a writer has really been to uh, try to make the case that beer is a cultural product. And that the styles that we have are not really just different flavors like ice cream. You know, you make the same base thing and you put in chocolate or you put in uh, strawberry, um, but rather come from this long tradition uh, where things like the local ingredients, uh, the way people think about beer and make beer, so methods, uh, you know, if you tour a brewery in Germany, you tour a brewery in the United States, you tour a brewery in Belgium. Um, the brew houses are set up really differently and the way they, they make beer and think about beer is very different. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of fascinating historical stuff that impacts that, like tax law, war and famine, um, prohibition. <laughs> you know, there, there are these interruptions that can radically change uh, the, the way beer develops. And then there's this witchy thing that is totally ineffable. And I always use the example of Dusseldorf and Cologne, these two these two cities where they both make their own city beer and they're 30 minutes apart, uh, you know, 30 minutes away from each other down the Rhine River. And uh, they don't make each other's beer and you can't buy each other's beer there. And there's absolutely no reason why that would be the case. They're completely open market economies and yet people drink Kolsch in Cologne and they drink alt beer in Dusseldorf and good luck trying to explain that <laughs> yeah that that is kind of funny um it's almost I, that would better be explained through sports are, are you a duck fan or are you a beaver fan because you can't be you can't be in between it's pick one um, yeah and i think i think that's a good example too because um 10 years ago as ipas started to become really the dominant style in the united states people i saw a lot of people complain that uh, you know i go to the brewery and, and have to candles are ipa um american beer is getting worse uh, i used to have more diversity and and i look at it and think well actually that shows a maturation because when you go to uh cologne for example you see one beer if you go to munich you see a few beers you don't see ipa you know you don't see triples um you don't see american uh, yeah american styles english styles you don't see cat scale you go to england Actually, England is really following the United States. That's a bad example. But um, what ha what happens is you see a narrowing of preference as the, as this tradition deepens, and that process that I'm talking about um, takes hold. And so it's completely 
it makes complete sense to me that we are developing this tradition based around um, brewing beers that that produce intense flavors and aromas of hops. That's that's become the American thing, and um, and and of course, uh, the more our industry becomes uh, and our culture becomes mature, we will see uh, less less diversity, not more, based on every other example we have in the country in the world. So, yeah. I, I think I think it's actually a sign of health that IPA has become so dominant, not a sign of of you know some some other malignant trend um and 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 it was inevitable if we were going to develop a healthy uh craft beer culture that we would begin to see our own our own uh styles develop so i think that's great i I think the term i would use is we found our groove yeah exactly good job that was a way 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 more economical way of putting it um uh if you could be the king of the beer world for a day jeff what would you change I wouldn't change anything, honestly. I mean, I think the you know ha- having studied beer uh, trends across the country, across the world, and then through time, uh, I see that it is a, a constantly evolving and changing uh, you know world. And uh, all you know, beginning a thousand years ago, as Hopdales were popular in the Hanseatic League cities, little breweries were complaining that the big Bremen breweries were putting them out of business. And, you know, uh, so, so much of what we think of as brand new in the beer world, um, styles dying out and people feeling bad about that and new styles coming in and traditionalists feeling like that's terrible. You know, we, what, what's this world coming to? Um, I look at it and think, you know, this is exactly what's been happening for, you know, forever. <laughs> we've been drinking beer basically forever as humans uh, since we've been civilized, and it's been in flux the whole time. And that that change has caused people uh, both excitement and uh, you know aggravation in equal measure. And it, it's just the way of things. So I look at it. And I'm 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 really happy that as a writer, uh, I got to sit in uh, with a ringside view of what's going on right now with all the change. Um, there are certainly periods, you know, if I'd been writing about beer in the 40 years following prohibition, it would have been a far, far less interesting uh, subject to cover. So I, I got no complaints, even, you know, now that we're into ranch water and seltzers and other stuff, it's like, well, this is all interesting. Um, I don't particularly love those, the, those beverages, but, um, but they're, they're new and interesting and but they got us all talking. So, uh, you know, I have no complaints. I love that perspective. I, I think about vacations. People want to go and relax. And frankly, I want to go and do all these crazy fun adventures. And and a, a, a for me, a better vacation is you end up exhausted, not bored. And what you just, how you just described the craft beer as it is, it's, this has been one heck of an adventure, if you think about it. Absolutely. It's been, uh, you know, from, from the middle of the uh, 19th century until about 1980, uh, breweries just closed, um, and cons- you know, consolidation went crazy. Styles, we had a mass extinction event with Styles, um, and then in 1980, that completely reversed itself. This is also a completely traditional and an expected pattern of contraction and expansion. And we happen to be living in that period of you know the the next great awakening in beer, and and are watching it play out, and uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so uh, this is your last day on Earth before you get on the uh, the rocket ship and head off to Mars. Uh, what is going to be your uh, last meal and your last beer? Well, if it's if it's today, uh, I would probably have something uh, food I could care less about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, whatever. Yeah, I'll have a burger with my beer. I don't really care. Uh, the the point is the beer. And um, you know, it was a warm day. I'm I'm actually visiting my parents in Arizona at the moment, so oh. um, I'm I'm thinking of something uh, like a crisp pilsner. But if it were if it were you know in the middle of winter, I'd want a nice uh, hearty stout. Um, so it, that answer would change, um, probably day by day, minute by minute, honestly. Oh yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way, but I, I definitely have my revolving, uh, ones I keep coming back to, but, um, uh, oh, well, anyway, next question. Um, uh, you have a, a ton of perspective and experience within the beer world. Um, basically why does good beer matter beer is actually a craft and that word has become a little bit um corrupted you know it's become a slogan rather than a description but uh i have i've had the extraordinary opportunity to tour breweries all over europe um uh, in a few other countries as well um and the united states and talk to breweries uh, and, and brewers as they think about beer and they, uh, the, the number of decisions a brewer must make in producing this sugar water with hot, this hot sugar water, uh, are extraordinary. And they, you know, there's literally hundreds of decision points in the brewing process and the, the ones who do it really well, there's nothing special about it. You know, they have the same breweries, uh, same brew houses. They have the same ingredients, but they have special insight into the nature of this beverage we love. And they, um, you know, I don't know if it's because they leave it, they leave their mash at a certain rest five minutes longer than somebody else or what it is, or if it's all these tiny little adjustments they make along the way. But when you visit a brewery where the beer is extraordinary, uh, you have a sense of that craft and that's uh that's the thing i would communicate it's it's not about uh different flavors sometimes we get caught up in you know just focusing on the flavors when i taste a beer i taste i taste everything the brewer has done uh to make it that way and when it's done very well i i just i sit there in amazement excellent excellent i i kind of feel the same way um uh, a couple more questions real quick and short and easy. Um, if anyone's listening that wants to connect with you or find your books or anything like that, listen to the podcast, read the blog, where can they go to connect? Birvanablog.com has got all that info. Uh, so if you dig around there, you'll find links to the to my books and uh, to the podcast, and, and you'll see what I write about there too. Perfect. And I will put uh, all those uh, show notes in there as well. Um, last thing, uh, do you have any calls to action or any final words of wisdom for anyone listening? Not, not so much. Uh, we're, we're speaking at a time in which, um, the industry is, is reckoning with the way, uh, we treat women in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that follows a reckoning in the way we treat non-white, uh, people. So if you think about underrepresented folks in the industry, and I think that that could be, um, in terms of gender, sexual orientation, uh, uh, 
uh, race, you know, any, any, <laughs> the industry is dominated by white men. So anybody who's not a white man, uh, is, uh, you know, we're, 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 a, uniquely aware at this moment that, uh, this industry has not been welcoming to folks who are not white men. And so I don't have a call to action so much as, uh, I hope people's hearts are open and, uh, and welcoming, um, and that the industry has fewer, <laughs> fewer barriers, um, and is, uh, and, and welcomes the perspectives and talents of a broader range because that will only make the industry better and it'll make the beer better. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm disheartened when I read all the stories of discrimination and I'm heartened when I see all the people who are persevering in the face of it to uh, improve this industry. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, thank you for coming on to the good beer matters podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, talk with you, getting your insight. Um, I, I'm, I'm just very grateful. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Perhaps it's a sign of industry maturity to see some breweries stay ahead of demand while others fall far behind. But it also reminds us that we vote with our dollars. If we love a brewery, we need to spend money there. But if your brewery is not receiving these dollars, it's time to examine why. In the next episode, we visit with a beer educator to learn what beer pros need to know and why it will help improve your business. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.